Blog Talk Radio. joining us again today. Today we're going to be continuing with a theme that we uh, talk about with some regularity, which is the pressing issue, the hot issue, if you will, of climate change. Global warming, once we refer to it as the abundance of greenhouse gases, CO2, methane, that are utterly taking over our atmosphere and heating it up. And in fact, it not only heats it up, it can also cool it down and cause any number of different climatic disruptions to our atmosphere and altogether to our Earth. And it seems pretty evident that we are experiencing that, that we are in the throes and the crux of it right now as we watch literally week by week how our own country and the planet, but just in our own country, we are seesawing back and forth with extreme weather conditions. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be a climate scientist to see that something is truly amiss, something is wrong, and to chalk that up simply as cyclic change, which does occur and is occurring, of the planet would be to really miss what is referred to as the anthropogenic or man-caused, man-generated issues that are a result of our industrialized age. And it's not just that. It's actually that we have not been eco-sensitive. We haven't been paying attention actually to the entirety of the industry cycle because if we were, we could make and could have made changes in our systems to be eco-sensitive so that CO2 wouldn't be just spewing forth from our various uh, chimneys all over the world and from our uh, exhaust uh, pipes and the like, we would have been able to, and still very much can, perhaps be more qualified now than ever, to modify and modulate and regulate the stream of greenhouse gases, 
which are directly responsible for the warming up of our planet through other technology and through, well, how do I put it, clear thinking. So today's show, my friends, is dedicated again to looking at the subject of global warming, of climate change, with somebody who is very deeply involved day by day, week by week, month by month, while others are going to work and generating money to pay their rent and the like, we have with us the national organizer of one of the most prominent organizations that are on the front lines of change and education and activism for a better world, yes, for dealing with the issues of climate change. We're going to be speaking with Sarah Shore of 350.org. Many of you probably recognize the name Bill McKibben, who is one of the co-founders of uh, the movement known as 350.org. He has done so much with all of his associates, students, and colleagues uh, at 350.org in its formation and in its promulgation of the facts regarding uh, global warming on a planetary level. They have led the movement. They have been truly one of the great leaders of the movement. And Sarah is part of that core team that is really helping to make a difference on the ground, championing education for us all about climate change. Now, if you don't even know the facts, the statistics, so to speak, that we're dealing with uh, a warmer, really hotter, last 20 years than we have had in the last 400, certainly since records have been kept on weather and climate. Even if you don't know that, you know something, as I said before, is a mess. And that's why organizations such as 350.org got formed in the first place and are leading the band, so to speak, in making a difference and helping us all collectively become conscious of our carbon footprint and then reduce it. So on that note, I would like to introduce Sarah, to you. Let me just make sure she is here. Sarah, are you on with us today? I am on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. A pleasure to have you on A Better World. So, you know, I spoke of the issues that are before us, the fact that we feel it heating up underneath our own feet, on our own skin. We also feel the extreme weather. What is it that originally motivated you into into this. You're uh, of a younger generation than a lot of our listeners. It would be really interesting for us to hear uh, what got you moving in this direction, distinct from many others you could have gone into. I would say it's um, it's about my own future and the future of my friends and family. Um, we are facing... Mm-hmm one of the biggest challenges that we have faced in history. And us, us really dealing with climate change is a matter of life and death um, for our generation, for our, our children's generation. 
Um, and I think for me, it, it felt like I, I had to. Um, I also yeah. got involved because I think that the effects of climate change that we're already seeing today and that we will continue to see in the future also perpetuate most other injustices in the world. Um, and it felt very important to me to take that on as I've seen it mm. the same for many, many others. You know, that's interesting. I mean, you're obviously very conscientious. I'm just curious, in your family in growing up, were your parents aware of climate change? Was that something they discussed with you or discussed with your siblings, with the family? Or do you discover this more or less on your own recognizance, based on your own uh, research? <laughs> you know, that's a funny question because my parents were definitely activists. Um, uh -huh. They would consider themselves social justice activists. But climate yes. was not as much um, a thing that we talked about. I think we, we've known for a long time in this country and throughout the world that climate change is a serious issue, but it's only recently in the last maybe 10 years come into the public consciousness um, yes. as, as much as it should. So, Interesting. no, it, was, so, it wasn't. Yeah. No, please, go on. Oh, yeah, it, it wasn't something that we talked about so much. I think the, the place where I learned about climate change was college. I was an environmental science major and learned from oh. many – pretty much every class I took was about how anthropogenic climate change is, is going to affect our future. I see. What school did you go to? I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Oh, right. Wesleyan. Yes, indeed. I grew up in Westport where oh. I had my, yeah, we were neighbors. I used to do a, uh, a psychiatric internship around the corner at uh, oh, Homecrest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Small world. And I used to I love Wesleyan. I used to go up there for East Indian music concerts. Yeah. All by myself. Yeah. Nobody had an interest among my friends <laughs> to listen to Indian music but me. But they had an excellent department. <laughs> so in the midst of my dealing with the psychology of man, I would cool out at Wesleyan <laughs> with beautiful classical Indian music. Oh, I'm glad that you went to that wonderful place. So you and they have a real social consciousness there. So interesting. That's where you got it. So you got some seeds planted in your family because of the sense of social activism of your parents, even though it wasn't specified in the direction of the environment. But you made a very good point before, which is that environmental uh, issues – actually are entangled in all other social justice issues, such as economic mm -hmm. justice. And now we're looking mm -hmm. at the issue of climate refugees, literally mm -hmm. m in the millions across the world, and that's directly related to who has food and who has shelter and who owns the land and who does not. Maybe you can mm -hmm. comment on that. Yeah, I mean, the the easiest example to see of the ways that climate disruption have affected our world is, is with major weather events. Um, we yeah. saw in the last couple of years we've seen 
Superstorm Sandy, Super Typhoon Haiyan. We've seen droughts and wildfires across the country. Um, all of these things are more frequent and more dangerous due to climate disruption. Um, it's like what, what sci- how scientists describe it is is that it weather events become more extreme. It's like having weather events on steroids. So where you would yeah. get a regular storm, you now get a super storm. Um, and everything is is sort of bigger than it would be otherwise. So we saw Superstorm Sandy caused almost $70 billion in damage. Um, and climate change costs, climate change costs, the world economy about $1.2 trillion a year and causes about 400,000 deaths every year. Um, and unless we, unless we continue to, to reduce carbon and really um, take a look at this issue and address it seriously, we're going to continue seeing even more extreme weather impacts. Indeed. Now, Let's let's back up a little bit. Thanks a lot for those details. Uh, details there. I mean, can you imagine over a trillion dollars a year now? Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. know, we're we're still at the very earliest stages of this disaster. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are many opinions about whether it is reversible, whether it is 100% reversible, 80% reversible, or what. But let's actually take a step back altogether because, believe it or not, there are people out there who have um, drunk the Kool-Aid and uh, have decided not to actually pay close attention to the uh, the uh, perspective of scientists around the world in general, not to mention climate scientists in particular, who overwhelmingly, with the vast majority of them saying, oh my, do we have a problem. But let's just deconstruct mm-hmm. it for a moment, Sarah. What do you say to people who uh still are not quite, they know there's extreme weather issues, but they will tend to shrug their shoulders and say, ah, there have always been weather issues. Uh, What do you say to those people from uh, your perspective? I mean, honestly, I think think we're past that point. I think we're past the point of arguing about whether climate change is caused by humans or not and whether it's existing. Like you said, 95, I think it's even more than 95% of scientists now agree that climate change is happening and it's caused by humans. So I actually prefer not to engage in the conversation of whether or not it's happening. Um, I think a huge number, a huge percentage of Americans also believe this science. I believe it's over 70% of Americans um, trust this science, and I think it's not about whether or not it's happening. I think it's about what what do we do about this problem. Right. Well, I think that that's a very – I like your – you are showing me that you hang out with a very (laughs) hip crowd, (laughs) and I like that, an educated crowd. Um, uh, I think that some of what you're saying is accurate, that uh, people definitely know – that something is up. There's no question about that. I think a question remains, um, 
even among some scientists, some of whom I'm friendly with and have interviewed, that while there is no doubt, none, about whether climate change is occurring, there is still a question about, distinct, by the way, from we being the source of major pollution and major CO2 emissions, even separate from that, about how much of what's going on uh, is uh, human-caused. So it's not that I want to go into that so deeply, and I do want to talk about primarily what we can do about it, but I would like to look at that question because there is a lot of science that shows, uh, you know, having to do with ice ages and the like, that there are very real cyclical patterns. Greg Braden, who is one of the mm -hmm. most advanced uh, scientists that I know of, uh, said here on this show that while, yes, there is a percentage of anthropogenesis in this regard, largely it's just geology and, you know, and climate patterns. Um, Christian Opitz from Germany, another scientist, also has said on these same airwaves something similar. So, uh, you know, there are dissenting voices, not whether there's climate change, but what our role in it is, distinct from, I always say, who cares? I think you may feel that way too. Who cares? <laughs> We're polluting our planet terribly, and it, it reduces the quality of our life altogether. So on that basis alone, reduce the carbon footprint. And if it has a, mm -hmm. a very salubrious effect on uh, climate and weather, God bless. But what do you have to say about that? Um, I, I, I mean, the the intergovernmental panel on climate change does a assessment every um, about six years on on the effects of climate change and whether or not it's it's anthropogenic. In the last report, which came out in um, in 2007, the headline findings were that warming of the climate system is unequivocal. So it's definitely warming is definitely happening, um, and most of the observed increase in, in um, global temperatures is very likely due to the observed increase in anthropogenic greenhouse gas concentrations. So what that means is that and and let me back up and just say, it's sure. very rare for scientists to ever say this is 100% true. It's actually very rare for them Good to point. say this is you know this is 90% sure. Um, yeah. I think it's it's you will almost never get a case of a scientist saying that because there's always there's always some statistical thing that could point in the other direction, but. It is very, very rare for a huge group of scientists to come to this level of consensus as what happened with the last IPCC report. And let me let me also say that uh, the explain IPCC. IPC, explain. Yeah. Tell us yeah. Again. So the inner the intergovernmental panel on climate change is um, is a group of scientists, economists. Um, it's an intergovernmental body. Um, it's it's set up by many different governments and includes um, all kinds of economists and scientists. And 
the um, the purpose of the report is to come to consensus about what is um, happening with climate change globally and how much of that is due to humans. Um, and so in, in the last report, like I said, they came to the, con the consensus that globally Global warming was definitely happening and that it was very likely, so very likely is a pretty high, um, a high bar for scientists to come to consensus yeah. about. Um, very likely anthropogenically caused. Got it. So now, 350.org, hearing the call, feeling the heat. <laughs> <laughs> what? is 350.org about for our audience? Yes, thank you for asking that. So 350 parts per million. Um, it's a very science, it's, it's named after a very scientific concept, which is that the internationally agreed upon levels of, safe levels of carbon in the atmosphere is 350 parts per million. Carbon is in CO2. Yes, yes. yes. Um, so 350.org was formed um, because we felt like climate change was starting to be globally recognized. We knew it was a really big problem, and what we didn't see was a grassroots movement to really hold our elected officials and decision makers accountable to address this problem. Um, and like you said earlier, it was started by Bill McKibben and a group of college students at Middlebury College who In Middlebury, like Vermont? Mm -hmm. In Middlebury, Vermont, yes. Um, and they felt like the, the grassroots movement had not built strong enough to address the magnitude of the crisis. Um, mm -hmm. And so that... And when was it begun? I believe it was 2008. Um, okay. Many of them were seniors in college and started the organization with the help of their professor, Bill McKibben. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you have been responsible for some rather massive global-sized uh, demonstrations and activism. Tell us a little bit about what 350.org in its relatively brief history. I mean, just because you went to Wesley, and I'll share this with you, uh, <laughs> I told you I grew up in Westport. I, at age 14, my father used to have to drive me to environmental demonstrations in Bridgeport. I was too young. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to be aghast at driving by uh, the um, smokestacks in Bridgeport mm -hmm. on our way home to Westport, which is a totally non-industrialized town, um, and seeing these huge puffs of black smoke and soot mm -hmm. issuing fire as a kid. And I'd say, Dad, what is going on? That, that's got to be illegal. I mean, certainly it's mm -hmm. awful, even if it's not illegal, but it should be. It's certainly yeah. unethical. And he said, yes, son, it is. I said, but who's doing something about it? I mean, certainly there were adults, weren't there, Dad, that are 
actually doing something about to stop this? Because if this is happening in one small city in uh, known as Bridgeport, Connecticut, and there are a thousand cities across our one country that are doing same, we're in trouble. Now, mm-hmm. I said that to him. We it was in the late the late sixties. All right. So look at that. Mm-hmm. I was one, by the way, back then, of thousands and thousands of people sounding the alarm back then about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just because it was the first time I began thinking when I was about 14, you know, really thinking. Mm-hmm. But how many decades were there before that with the advent of the Industrial Revolution where people smartly inferred the obvious? that you cannot do this to your planet without dire consequences. So you follow me. I thought you would enjoy yes. the story. Yes. Right? And you bring up Pretty a wild. good point. Um, yeah, you, you bring up a good point of um, the fact that most of the industry that we see in this country and around the world, there's, there's a term called environmental injustice which describes mm-hmm. the the proportion of power plant, plant facilities, um, toxic waste facilities, basically any kind of um, facilities that pollute the air or water or land, um, those facilities tend to disproportionately be located in communities of color and low-income communities, um, mm-hmm. very high disproportionately placed in those, in those communities. Um, yeah. and, and just like you noticed when you were 14 years old, you know, health impacts are very tied to, to cl- climate impacts. You know, it's the same That's right. um, facilities Continuum. that are causing local, yeah, the local yeah. health impacts are, are, are a huge issue that have been being fought by local communities for decades and decades and decades. And, Climate change is kind of the the thing that brings all of these local communities that are being affected um, more locally by by these issues together. Yes, indeed. And I'm I'm glad you're making that point, Sarah, because here your parents and their interest in social activism, (laughs) you know, can come up to, uh, you know, up to discussion, up to the surface, and then your work in environmental science shows what that tender, delicate relationship is. You're right, Bridgeport is a largely uh, lower-income black community except for mm-hmm. when you get into the suburbs. But the inner city mm-hmm. is certainly that. So what ends up happening? But these are the people with least ability to take care of themselves, to eat well, to and, and, the, and the like, um, end up breathing the worst air, getting mm-hmm. polluted, more polluted water into their faucets. And it's like adding insult to injury is really, in a sense, what you're saying. And you can generalize from Bridgeport all the way across the planet. We see the same environmental, social, economic injustice. So at the end of the day, we see that we're dealing, I mean, this is the way I think about it, and because my background is in psychology and holistic health, that what we're dealing with 
is a very profound pathology of the people who continue to perpetuate this phenomenon, this paradigm. You know, and not only is it homicidal, clearly it's homicidal, but it's also suicidal. That's the part that is a little difficult to, well, it's all difficult to reckon with, but even especially. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) We are speaking with Sarah Shore of 350.org. She is the U.S. national organizer. She is a graduate of Wesleyan University in environmental science. She's been working side-by-side with uh, her colleagues at 350.org, including the co-founder, Professor Bill McKibben, the author of numerous books and well-known for uh, his active, engaging role in waking people up and educating them. After all, he's an educator, par excellence, about something so important. I know from been reading his uh, latest book, Sarah, in fact, I'll have him on relatively soon, if all goes well, to talk about his book and uh, life in Vermont and you know, the life of his daughter. And we all think about these things of the younger generations. What in the world uh, are we leaving them when the responsibility is so squarely on our shoulders? Your comments. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, I think the reason that many people get involved with this issue is because they see how it will affect their children and grandchildren. Um, I yeah. Many of the activists that I work with across the country, that is the thing that motivates them. Um, and I, I think the point you touched on before was that in communities that are directly impacted by um, carbon emissions or um, air pollution, like Bridgeport, Connecticut, like um, you know, like West Harlem in New York, like mm-hmm. Richmond, California, all of these communities have been fighting air pollution for a long time. Um, but climate change is going to affect us all, um, yeah. and. You know, these these people on the front lines who have been fighting these fights for decades and decades sort of mm-hmm. built a lot of the momentum to build this climate movement. Um, and climate is going to affect us all. We saw it with Superstorm Sandy in New York. Um, and it's going to affect some of us more than others. You know, we see yeah. that the the people who really suffer the most in major climate events, again, are tend to be underserved communities. We saw, you know, the Rockaways in New York still yeah. struggling from Superstorm Sandy. We saw um, the Ninth Ward in New Orleans destroyed by Hurricane yeah. Katrina. Um, yeah. You know, it's while while there are some communities that are already suffering disproportionately, um, and also those tend to be the same communities that even before the impacts of climate change experience a lot of the pollution from these same power plants and industry. Um, and so we, we we continue to see that, but we're also seeing the impacts affect everybody across the board. Yes. Yes, it's a very good point. You're listening to uh, A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, our website is www.abetterworld.com. 
TV. So sign up for our weekly newsletter, which announces who we will be speaking with on the weekly radio show, as well as the weekly TV show that we air out of New York City and the heart of Manhattan. And it's also a webcast, simulcast, when it's aired every Tuesday night at 1030 in Manhattan. So uh, become part of a Better World family. We'd love to have you. And these are the kinds of conversations, dialogues, interviews uh, I engage my guests in because it's uh, world-changing and we're doing everything we can to create a better world. And God knows we've got a lot to do, so we actually should be on every day. <laughs> but right now <laughs> I can just do one day a week for the time being, but everything is an archive. We're spending the uh, show today speaking with the U.S. National Organizer uh, for 350.org environmental scientist, Sarah Shore. So, Sarah, I so appreciate your input today. It's really, really a pleasure. Um, let's look at uh, some of the other issues that are facing us because you wanted to turn the the conversation around to what to do. And I think that's very important. We all feel mm-hmm. that, you know, when we're looking at a, at a comet coming at us, what do we do? Well, in that case, you just kind of run. But in this case, we actually have actions that we can all take individually to reduce our own carbon footprint. And there are things that we can do politically to get our, representatives in Congress and even corporate America. They also represent us in some interesting way um, to turn around their policies. Tell us a little bit about what we can do relative to some of what's going on. For instance, let me bring up the XL Keystone Pipeline that has been so much in the news for the last uh, couple of years. Where does 350.org stand on that? What's happening? What, do us, what does our audience need to know? Well, I'll, I'll just start, before I go into Keystone, I'll just start by saying, you know, the blessing and the curse of climate change yes. in terms of getting involved is that there are so many, um, there are so many things that, that, contribute to climate change across the country. There are plenty of fights to immerse yourself in. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there are folks fighting coal plants across the country. There are folks fighting tar sands projects across the country, which I'll talk a little bit more about. Um, There are folks fighting fracking projects, pipelines, and drilling. Um, And all of these you know, bring it back to a bigger issue of climate change. So I can pretty much guarantee you that within an hour drive of your house, you'll be able to find some fight that's worth fighting. Um, yes. But it's yes. um, probably right. a great group of people that are already fighting it. Um, yeah. But I will, I will go into talking a little bit more about the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, like like you said, Mitchell, it's been in the news a lot for the last couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. And the Keystone XL pipeline 
is a massive, it's a 2,000-mile-long pipeline that would run through, um, would run from Alberta, Canada, through Montana, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. Um, and it would transport a kind of oil called tar sands oil, which is being currently being extracted in Alberta as we speak. Um, it's a more carbon-intensive oil that is also a lot more dangerous to um, extract and to transport. Um, so this pipeline is is pretty dangerous. Um, it, what makes it dangerous? I mean, after all, so, oil has been transported from one end of the country to another through any number of different means for a long time, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, honestly, without much disruption. Mm-hmm. So the real thing that, that makes the Keystone XL pipeline so important is that right now the tar sands, this big um, this big sort of source of tar sands oil is completely landlocked and the industry does not have a way to get it to market. Um, so the Keystone XL pipeline is kind of the linchpin to developing the tar sands oil. And like I said before, tar sands oil is a lot more carbon intensive than regular oil. It's also um, more dangerous to to move through pipes. So it's more corrosive. There have been many more tar sand spills when when using the regular pipe infrastructure that we have used in the past to transport natural gas or, or regular oil. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also a lot harder to clean up than regular oil spills. So you've seen pictures. You mean, in other words, in the event of an oil spill, it's, you know, it's a magnitude more difficult than what we already face, which is already difficult anyway. Exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you've seen pictures of of oil spills. We all know that oil sort of um, floats to the top of water, and tar sands oil doesn't do that. It actually sinks. So it's far more difficult to to clean up, and it has many cancer-causing agents in it. So um, spills are inevitable, and they will happen, and they're far more dangerous. Um, One of the biggest um, sort of points that people have been fighting against with this, this pipeline is that the pipeline would actually go over the Ogallala aquifer, which provides fresh water to a huge percentage of um, the Midwest, and it's it's our freshwater drinking source. Um, and if we had tar sand spill in the Ogallala aquifer, it would affect a huge amount of people's water. Mm, and where is it located? Where's the aquifer located? It's in Nebraska. In it's Nebraska. underground in Nebraska, yeah. Got it. That's that's really dicey. Yes. And we've also seen, you know, there have been doctors um, come forth in indigenous communities surrounding the extraction sites in Alberta um, with really high rates of cancer in their communities from the chemicals um, used in tar sands extraction and the tar sands extraction itself. It also creates huge waste pits 
um, that can also contaminate groundwater at the extraction sites. Um, and then again, once it's piped down to refineries, um, it's a lot more carbon intensive to burn. So the communities near those refineries on the Gulf Coast who are already facing disproportionate health impacts from the burning of coal and oil will now see an increased amount of carbon and which which would mean an increased number of health effects. Would the refineries are they to be in the United States in Texas or across the border in Mexico? Most of the refineries that tar sands oil is bound for right now. Um, if if the Keystone XL pipeline did get built, it would be bound for refineries on the Gulf Coast in the U.S. Um, and then the tar sands oil would likely be shift, shipped off for export. So one of so the that's arguments- interesting. We who would be getting the the oil at the end of the process? It wouldn't be the it United would, States. It would not. It would not. And um, it would be sold on the world market. Um, it would not be guaranteed for the United States. Um, and TransCanada, the company that wants to build the Keystone XL pipeline, has admitted that it would not go to the U.S. It would go to the world market, to whoever would pay mm-hmm. the most for it. Interesting. Well, this sounds daunting. Interesting, what was it, about six months ago, uh, that's just an estimate, I think it was Exxon had a pipe, I think it was also maybe in Nebraska, maybe you remember, that exploded and uh, it was on the national news where people had massive amounts of oil spilled into the creeks in their backyard and on their grass Mm -hmm. and it was, Mm -hmm. I know, Personally, I thought this is absolutely awful on one hand, and on the other hand, it is showing us graphically the smallest um, Mm -hmm. example of what it would be like to have the Keystone Pipeline actually implemented. Do you remember that incident I'm referring to? Yeah, you're talking about um, Mayflower, Arkansas, which um, happened in yeah. March of last year, I believe. Um, yeah. And and you're entirely correct. It was it was tar sands that was going through that pipeline. Um, and oh, it, it was. And also, okay. Mm-hmm. It was it was tar sands oil, um, and in fact, um, it was a very small spill. It was about six thousand barrels of crude that were spilled. Um, which is, I mean, we all, we, or some of us saw pictures of that spill. It was in a small community in Arkansas, um, and it was it was very minor compared to what a spill on the Keystone XL pipeline could look like. What was the um, origin of those tar sands, Sarah? Um, that's a good question. I'm I'm not sure. I'm not okay. sure. It wasn't I was, Alberta. I was <laughs> It's, it it's must have been somewhat it local. It's possible oh, really? it was Alberta, actually. Yeah, so this sort of brings me to um, to another part of this fight, which is that really it's, it's not just about the Keystone Pipeline. The purpose of fighting the Keystone Pipeline is to fight the 
the extraction and burning of dirty tar sands oil. So like I said, mm-hmm. tar sands oil is more carbon intensive and we're sort of at the beginnings of the tar sands industry and the extraction of tar- and burning of tar sands. And so there are fights being fought on many different fronts about how to really keep this tar sands oil in the ground. So while Keystone mm-hmm. itself is a really important fight, it's a big pipeline that would carry over 800,000 barrels of oil per day, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not the only fight. Um, there's actually a bunch of fights on the West Coast. Um, they are another option besides... Tar sand sites? Yeah, tar, tar sand, sand sites. sites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... The other option, if they can't transport it by by pipe, they would like to transport it by rail. Um, and so there are a few different um, rail facilities, transport and storage rail facilities proposed for the West Coast um, and also expanded rail lines there. Um, there's a refinery expansion being proposed to be able to process tar sands oil in many of the West Coast refineries, um, including ones in the Bay Area where I live, in the San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay Area. Um, and, and these are being actively are, opposed by the residents or what? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, there so there's a bunch of fights on the West Coast that are being very well organized against, um, as well as fights in the Midwest and the Northeast. Um, other pipelines, other facilities that would help get the oil out via rail Um, are all being fought on so many different fronts. Um, There's a coalition in the Northeast called Tar Sands Free Northeast. They have been fighting a a pipeline and an oil-by-rail transportation and also an export facility, Um, and they've been getting local towns to pass resolutions against against having tar sands infrastructure in their towns. Um, mm, so interesting. that's been a very successful campaign. Um, and a lot of other towns across the Midwest and the West Coast are looking to follow in that vein. Is that so? That's really good news. That's really good news. Yes. At the end of the day, we don't really want to live a life of fighting against. It's empty, really in itself uh but we want to stand for something as they say you know mm-hmm. uh, if you don't stand for something you fall for something so to stand for a uh an affirmative solution an alternative an option whatever word we may want to use that that takes the issue of the need for energy which we very much have we have a very enormous uh, appetite in this country and increasing around the world for the use of energy. I'm actually involved in a number of initiatives to provide energy in developing Mm -hmm. countries where there is none right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean no energy, no electricity. So 
there is a lot of value in electrifying villages in Africa and Southeast Asia and Latin America where people are living a life that isn't nearly up to a standard that could really enrich their lives in many ways. So the question isn't whether we want to energize and electrify. The question is how. I I think we very much agree on this. And so the how gets very exciting, actually, because because of the brilliance of the human mind and spirit, there are incredible, ingenious, highly creative technologies that have come to the fore. Uh, New designed, newly designed wind turbines, for instance, that friends of mine are working on, uh, higher level solar panels that are 10 plus times what the standard solar panel has been able to provide. Um, Hydropower, mini hydropower, that Uh, technologies that don't need dams at all, but are very eco-sensitive, fish-friendly, and you just sort of drop them in and turn it on, and there it goes, (laughs) using the current of the water. There's geothermal, there's tidal, there are so many creative ways of using nature's own energy that are flowing all the time, all day long, 24-7, and harnessing those in ways. I mean, you could even harness the local gym, and people are on their bicycles, and they were doing the same thing it was at the Olympics recently. So, you know, the, the sources are unending, and it makes the argument, Sarah, which you're really making, why do we need to go to the extreme of tar sands. It's enough that we have gone to oil and we're in oil, and that's not disappearing anytime exactly soon. But over time, it could well get phased out. Why bring another level of difficulty to the foreground, so to speak, uh, with tar sands, or for that matter, with fracking? That's a whole other conversation that you touched upon. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. uh, is what I'm saying make logical sense to you and where you're coming from? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have the clean energies out there, and there's no reason that we should be um, going to dirty and dangerous fossil fuel energies like like tar sands and, like you said, like like fracked oil and fracked gas. Exactly. Um, Right. There's no reason for that which also gets exported for other countries, not even our own, (laughs) despite some rhetoric and propaganda. Let's turn our attention for a moment to the decision-maker in this scenario with the Keystone Pipeline and lots of others because he really sets the tone and sets the um, agenda and the policy. And that's uh, the... um, current resident of the White House, President <laughs> Obama. <laughs> yes. What so that's one you, of the great things does, about... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. <clears throat> no, no, I just wanted to know. I've seen Bill McKibben weigh in on both sides of this discussion. On one hand, he's been in Obama's face, and then he's backed off of that at moments to say he thinks that he's beginning to speak the right language when it comes to the Keystone Pipeline. 
but there's the, the wavering that most politicians do. Tell us about 350.org's relationship with Obama and what we can do as citizens about the decision maker here. Yeah, so so President Obama is the decision maker on the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, while there is an extensive um, process that goes through the State Department, President Obama has the final word on Keystone, um, which is great because he's a single decision maker that was elected by Progressive America, and um, he needs to he needs to be accountable to the promises that he's made around climate. Um, he has said some really great things about addressing the issue of climate change. Um, we feel like we have not seen him coming through on his word to seriously address climate change. Um, we do think that he's taken some really great steps. Um, the fuel efficiency standards that he set forth are, are great for new vehicles. Um, he also has a, a new climate action plan that um, has new regulations on power plants, which through the EPA, which is great. Um, but we know how big the issue of climate change is, and it's going to take some really bold action to address. Um, pretty much every oil pipeline that's ever been requested has been approved, and we need to stop business as usual and stop the process of allowing the fossil fuel industry to run the politics of this country. Um, so we feel like Obama needs to take a stand, and the first thing that he needs to do is reject the Keystone XL pipeline. Ah, from your mouth to God's ears, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about it. I, I, you've spoken in some ways very uh, encouragingly that uh, I appreciate. On the other hand, uh, maybe it's because uh, at the end of the day I am a psychotherapist and I, I look at the White House um, sort of from that same view that what I actually see is schizophrenia. And I mm -hmm. wish I didn't mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. schizophrenia is slightly out of control. And uh, on the one hand, you know, John Kerry, uh, who I otherwise appreciate in so many ways, especially in his days in Vietnam and when he ran mm -hmm. for president, uh, <clears throat> has been speaking to the president of, Indo of Indonesia and even the prime minister mm -hmm. of uh, China about climate change, which was shocking to me uh, okay. where he actually shocking that he discussed it and shocking that he thinks that we have some kind of moral leadership on the subject so I, okay. I'll put that aside for the moment uh, and just have my own private public giggle about it but <laughs> what is shocking to me is that for the first time in 30 years this same White House has authorized over $6 billion for the construction of, the, of a nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. First time in 30 years. That means even Nixon, Ford, both Bushes didn't do it. Reagan. Yeah, and... Yeah. 
And not only that, but extraction rates are up. There's more drilling happening in the U.S. than we've seen in decades. Um, Yes. You know, public lands have been opened up for drilling under Obama, which has not happened under the last several presidents. Um, There's a lot... I agree. It's it's very schizophrenic. We see him saying one thing, and then in his actions, it's something totally different. Exactly. And we're not going to even go back to candidate Obama in 2008, because then we would get really upset. <laughs> but, yeah, um, and I can tell you, I actually, I, I was a staffer on the Obama campaign. Um, I really believed that he was going to be a climate leader, and I moved yes. to Ohio to work on his campaign. Um, God bless you. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm disappointed in his climate yes, policy. Yes, I hear you. If you were going to move to Ohio, Sarah, I wish you would have taken up the banner for, at that time, presidential candidate Dennis Kucinich. That's where a a better world was. (laughs) We had all faith in Dennis Kucinich. (laughs) Anyway, no, I I wholly understand, you know, know, Obama took on a little bit of a rock star status among the younger people, and we all love the thought that a man of color was going to be able to get elected, but... I don't know. I I myself never had the confidence that others had, although I was, of course, totally moved when he did get elected uh, (laughs) for the reasons that I actually just cited, not for what I felt were his policies that he'd be sticking to, even though I very much, very much wanted him to. So let's, let's, in our closing minutes here, I'd like to uh, just see what you have to say and what 350.org has to say about hoping that he does the right thing in light of the track record, which shows that he hasn't. And I'm not even talking about I'm no fan of oil at all. In fact, a lot of my professional life, in business has to do with providing the world with alternatives to it. At the same time, I recognize and I have come to learn that there are actually some measures that are eco-friendly that can be implemented in the removal of oil. Uh, Not so much gas, like IE fracking, but oil from the ground. It can be done in sensitive ways. It's not done the way it should be in general, but I have come to learn that for whatever good that may do. And I think it could do a lot because we're not going to be over the oil addiction immediately. Tar sands presents a whole other issue that I think you've made the case very strongly about why it should be avoided completely. In fact, actually, before I get to the question of Obama and personal action of our audience, I do want to raise something that uh, just came across the news a week ago, and it was very critical in a good way for the Tar Sands XL pipeline issue. And that was, maybe you can talk about it, a judge in Nebraska ruled. Can you tell us about that ruling? This is awesome. Yeah, yeah. There was a cattle Um, farmer that was on Democracy Now!, I believe it was, and a few other places 
uh, being utterly outspoken. He got arrested right next to Bill and many others in mm-hmm. Washington. Uh, very impressive gentleman whose name is escaping me right now. But uh, he was, yes, that's right. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about this decision. It's very, very encouraging. So Nebraska has been leading the the Keystone site along with indigenous communities along the route of the pipeline and extraction sites. And there are a few, TransCanada, the company that wants to build this pipeline, has been trying to use eminent domain to force landowners to allow the pipeline to go through their land. Um, Mm -hmm. Let me remind you that TransCanada is a foreign company. It's not an American company. And it made a deal with the governor of Nebraska to to use eminent domain and threaten landowners who did not want this pipeline crossing their land um, Mm -hmm. and threaten them with eminent domain. Eminent, eminent. Eminent, sorry. So a few landowners went to court, um, and it was just ruled by a judge last week that that is unconstitutional under the Nebraska state constitution, and they are not allowed to to do that. Um, So it was a big win, and it's a little bit unclear about how it might affect the process for for, um, the pipeline. TransCanada may need to... uh, resubmit a, a proposal for the pipeline. So we're still sort of sorting out the legal details of what this means for the mm-hmm. site, but it's definitely a big win um, for yes, Nebraska and for the rest of us. It really is. Thanks for sharing the details of that. Uh, I think it's so important. And uh, are they thinking then if they since they lost that battle, of course they'll seek to appeal, but uh, would they possibly reroute the the pipeline around Nebraska? Is that an option? It's possible. It's possible. Um, We just don't know yet. The good news is that... And they definitely will appeal the decision. Yes. The good news is that um, uh, that will take a long period of time to resubmit mm-hmm. plans for going around the state. The other thing that became in clear contrast is that Trans Canada made a deal with the governor of Nebraska, which is completely against his sworn office to uphold the Constitution of not only mm-hmm. the United States, but of the state of Nebraska, and he would be mm-hmm. acting in diametrical uh in opposition to the people of Nebraska, you know, the cattle ranchers, the corn farmers and the like, to have it come in. So he may be impeachable. Certainly he's in a a vulnerable position not to be reelected, you know. So this is some of the good that has come out of the bringing of this to light. It's Mm -hmm. got many potentials for action. When it comes to Obama, what would you say to our audience in closing here, the measures they may take to help encourage him to make the right decision? 
This is a perfect question to end on because I think that in order to affect any decision maker's course of action, we have to pressure them to do the right thing. And this is Mm -hmm. definitely true with Obama. You know, he said outright to the climate community, make me do it. (laughs) Um, I'm so so glad you quoted that. I was going to do that. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Make me do it. So right. I think, you know, we, we it's our responsibility to organize around the issues that we care about and to fight for them. And there's no way that Obama, you know, there there is a good possibility that Obama might reject this pipeline. And a few years ago when this permit was going through, there was no chance of, of that happening. So it's really mm-hmm. a people-powered fight. And that's what is going to win this thing, and that's what's going to get us bold action on climate. And um, I'll also just put in a plug for a couple of actions that are coming up. Um, Please. There is a big action coming up this weekend. Um, It's called XL Descent. It's about 700 college students and young people from across the country have organized to converge in D.C. They are going to be marching from Georgetown University, where Obama gave his climate speech last summer. They'll be marching Mm -hmm. to the White House, where they'll rally and um, have a mass civil disobedience, where they'll be risking arrest. Um, they mm-hmm. plan to have 400 students risk arrest, which would break the single-day record for arrests at the White House. Um, oh, and their message to the president is, this is our future. We need you to act boldly on climate and reject the Keystone XL pipeline. Hallelujah. Beautiful. Anything else, closing words or plugs? Um, I would better? just say if you're interested in getting in, involved in climate activism, there are 350 local groups all over the country. You can find them at 350.org. Um, and if there isn't one near you, you can start one. We have local groups that are working on all kinds of local and national and international climate campaigns, both fighting, you know, fighting good fights against things, but also, like you said, Mitchell, fighting for local clean energy solutions um, and community-led solutions. So I encourage people who are interested in getting involved to go check out 350.org. Indeed. That's wonderful. And help to support them, even if it's $5 or $7 or $15, whatever it is, just help them out. People like Sarah are on the ground just dedicating herself to these actions. And so I just thank you to you and to all of your associates and colleagues and friends and Bill McKibben who have formed and continue to sustain these actions. They're so important. uh, Thank you for having me. I want you to know it's very much seen and appreciated by those of us in the progressive alternative media community (laughs) if the others don't get it. (laughs) We do. (laughs) Well, thank you, and I encourage everyone to get involved with us. Indeed. Well, that sounds great. Thanks so much. I'll be sending you uh, the link. We'll be getting that link to you of this radio program, which you can use for your purposes of educating your your friends and family and others at 350.org. It will be made available 
for the purposes of 350.org. Okay? Great. Thank you so much, Mitchell. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining me today. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Sarah Shore, the national organizer of 350.org. Many actions, as you just heard, have been taking place and are taking place even as soon as this weekend. There's a powerful movement in this country and worldwide to end the madness. And it is madness. It is, I always say that as a therapist, psychologist, you know, I'm always analyzing the actions, the behaviors, the attitudes, and the intentions from that perspective, because that's what it is we have to look at. We do have to look at uh, why are these things taking place? Why is there such a robust, dynamic, aggressive energy to uh, put in such a pipeline as that, or to continue this notion of business as usual, because it is like shooting ourselves in the foot, both feet. It's like walking off the plank. It doesn't make sense. Money isn't worth it. Power isn't worth it. We have become literally addicted to business as usual and thinking along the narrowest of pipelines, of neural pipelines. Indeed, that is really what they are. And we really want to take a look objectively at ourselves to understand the mechanisms of what keeps the madness in place. We're all subject to it. We all have programs that are somewhat self-destructive. You know, that's not really surprising. We seek to keep them to a minimum. We actually, some seek to eradicate them altogether. Sometimes it shows up in our uh, physical body. Sometimes it shows up in our emotional lives, maintaining relationships that aren't healthy or diets that aren't healthy or any kind of habit, you know, having to do with perhaps immoderate drinking or some people do drugging or uh, even, believe it or not, keeping very odd uh, sleeping hours has got an element of self-destructiveness to it because the body operates by cycles. And when it's not given enough, as we say in Chinese medicine, yin time, downtime, quiet time, um, and that is to occur at the time when melatonin is best released at night, we're throwing our entire system off biologically and therefore psychologically. So the nature of addiction sometimes is gross when it comes to, you know, let's say a drug or alcohol addiction, and sometimes it's rather subtle. And doing business the way we tend to do business has subtle, destructive energy and forces to it that we need to unpack 
unravel and redo. And the good news, the very good news, is the brain is educable and we can cut new neural pathways at any time and start what my old Tai Chi teacher used to say are good habits. He said, you're going to have habits. That's not the issue. The issue is, are they good? Are they serving you? Are they serving others? And the answer is, we can establish them. And in some ways, we are all little children, emotionally, or at least adolescents. So many people, especially those who are foisting power grabs on the planet, on the economy. It may not appear that way. They're wearing really beautiful suits and looked all, look all decked out in their fancy cars and the like, but down deep, the emotional reactivity is that of an adolescent or a football locker room in high school. Ah, yes. The maturity levels really don't go beyond high school in general, with some brilliant exceptions. And we have to look at the exceptions, and we have to establish a new paradigm of human being. Because this thing that we've all inherited, and we are all subject to, ain't working, and it's leading literally to the destruction of our species and many others. It's just sad. In fact, many speak of the sixth extinction. There have been five, and there are all of the signs and symptoms of the sixth, sixth being before us. However, there is lots of good news. We do not have to go down that path. We can forge a new path outside. We can form a new path inside. Yes, it starts with the inside. We start with a new path of how we think about, how we hold our future in our own mind. And I so often go back to the principle of indigenous wisdom of seven generations. Look down at your actions from the point of view of the seventh generation and see if it's having a positive effect or negative. And if it's having a positive, do more of it. And if it's having a negative, <laughs> can you find some alternatives, please? I.e., immediately? That's right. And that's what we're up against. So I very much appreciate our guest, Sarah Shore, today, who is sharing with us uh, on-the-ground, grassroots activism that 350.org is so involved in uh, promulgating and uh, originating much of it. And it's this kind, it's so beautiful to see the younger generations taking the bull by the horns and running and really getting on it. Certainly many in my generation and others around me have done, but <laughs> the odds are formidable. 
we cannot do it all ourselves. This is a group effort. I believe the good side, the silver lining of the extreme weather is that so many families all over the country have been directly, personally impacted. And I don't want to see that, God knows, but that personal impact has been a powerful, sobering wake-up call. And there's no getting around it. If they may have had religious, evangelical, or other uh, worldly notions of this idea of global warming, anthropogenic, man-made, man-caused, man-originated, uh, then I think they have gotten off that platform and decided to listen to their own experience. They don't even have to listen to science. They can just experience what they are directly, the impact on their own homes, their own communities, their own bodies, the losses, so sadly, that many have suffered. I am a New Yorker. I live here and went through Sandy. And to this day, almost no federal money has been spent in turning these communities around, in renovating the homes, in building new homes. It seems unbelievable. Over a year and a half or so, and still the building has not taken place. Like, what is going on? Who is obscuring and obfuscating this? Who? They need to be named and moved out of the way. There are people that populate government and hierarchies and bureaucracies. There are only people. There's no such thing as just a bureaucracy. It consists of petify the issues, the obstacles, the blockages, and move them aside so proper progress can take place. I just want to invite you all to really follow through with uh, knocking on the door at www.350.org. Learn what you can. Stand up and participate in whatever way that makes sense for you. Write letters to the White House. Be active on your Facebook pages. Spread the word. Take this link, which will be on our website, www.abetterworld.tv. It will be first on the on the home page. Then it will be in the radio archive as of uh, probably next week. Really, you can make an impact on people. Thanks very much. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. As said, we're on every Wednesday talking about these kinds of issues, environmental, health, social justice, spiritual. It's all spiritual. It's all from the gut, from the core, from the soul that we do what we do here on A Better World Radio, on A Better World TV, A Better World Media and Promotions. This is what we do. We uphold the values of humanity, of ecological sensitivity, of what we refer to as sacred stewardship. A friend of mine, uh, Kurt Johnson, has recently given me the phrase of eco-ministry. And indeed, that is what we're doing. 
We are stewarding our planet in as sacred a way as possible. We are ministering to its needs. The planet herself as a living being, Gaia, and to all of her inhabitants and children, us. Let me just remind you that we also take donations to keep us going. We've had a campaign for the last few months of a latte a month, a month, not even a week with Mitchell J. Raven and, uh, or, you know, uh, a small Starbucks latte of $3 a month. And there's a donut donate button at our website. Look, a donut almost costs $3 these days. Yeah. So instead you can donate. It's better for your waistline anyway to a better world, a betterworld.tv. Make it regular once a month. We're grateful for whatever you can do to keep us going, to keep us sustained. We also have something for you called the Harmonic Energetic balancing program and it's an energy based healing system energy balancing system which we do with people from afar through the holographic image of themselves i.e. a photograph and uh, you can learn more about that on our website as well so please do become part of a better world's community by signing up for our website for our uh, newsletter and uh, just thank you again. Last, we want to mention that we have two events coming up in New York City. If you're anywhere within the general four-state vicinity, uh, March 5th, one of our guests, my dear friend and colleague Michael Tellinger, who has been on our airwaves a few times, both radio and television, uh, sponsored and produced a conference in South Africa some time ago, and we will be doing a screening of some of the speakers at that conference at the Meta Center on March 5th. I just really refer you to our website for more information about that. And that's March 5th evening, 7 to 9.30, if you want to join us for that. That would be wonderful. And another very special evening with another one of our guests, David Christopher, the author of The Holy Universe, March 11th at the Meta Center as well. Advanced tickets are available currently at betterworld.tv. And I'd say get them in advance if you have any interest in attending because the seating is very limited. We have the smaller room at the Meta Center, and it just doesn't hold even more than 40 people. And we definitely expect to be sold out. I'll be doing a public interview with David Christopher, the author. Then we'll be doing a robust and dynamic Q&A with all those present, as well as some storytelling. And he'll be doing some reading from his beautifully lyrical book called the Holy Universe. On that note, my dear friends, thank you so much for listening. We know you have many choices about where to spend your time and where to get your knowledge and education and so love and appreciate that every week you come back here 
for a better world with Mitchell J. Rabin and get at least some portion of it from us here. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.